I want to jump back into our, uh, our teaching today. And it's a rather timely one. It's, it's interesting. Today, today we're talking about God. And you're saying, like, well, do, should we do that every week? Yes, we should do that every week. But today we're, like, specifically going to be talking about God. And we're in the, about a third of the way through this We Believe series that I've been teaching through, which is essentially a series on theology. It's a series that helps us to understand what are the essential beliefs in the Christian faith that help us to understand and identify what it is that actually makes us Christian. Like, what are the affirmations that should be at the top of our hearts and in the depths of our minds that actually show that we really believe in God as he, as he revealed himself to the world? And we're in an interesting era in the world. We're in sort of what has been known as like a post-truth era, simply meaning a lot of people are kind of making things up as they go. And it's kind of a challenge for a faith that is sort of very strategic and very thoughtful about what it is that we believe. And so this series is sort of aimed at giving those of us who are Christians an understanding or a background of what the essential beliefs of the Christian faith are, what we have affirmed for millennia. And it's also a great time for us to think about the way people that are not Christians actually process these ideas and truths. And so it's sort of a double-edged sword. It can exhort the Christian, but also give the Christian an opportunity to engage with the folks in our world who have very serious questions about God. The scripture is, is concerned with that. The Bible like, clearly says that God desires we be a people who can give an account for what we believe. And so this series is aimed at that. And the truth we're looking at today is a really important one. So for the last two weeks, I've tried to make a really strong case for the importance of understanding the Bible, what it is, where it came from, why we value it. And then we made a very strong appeal last week to read it. We talked about a couple of ways that we could actually get into the scripture, learn about God, and live for the Lord. So the reason being, all of the truths, the reason we sort of foundationally began with the idea of belief and then talked about the scripture is because everything we're talking about from here on out is coming from the scripture. I would have failed you if we started talking about God without understanding where we understand what, who God is, what he has done, and how he relates to us. In other words, there's a truth document we adhere to in the Christian faith called the scripture. And it's very important. These words we talked about are the very words of God. They are his breath that breathed life into us. And so today we're going to see, at least in part, what the scripture says about God. Today we're going to look at a bit of a summary statement from Jesus about who he says God is. And he has been sort of the linchpin in everything we've said. Not only are we referring to the Bible, but we are regularly going to Jesus' words to see how he himself affirmed these things. You know, in our pedigree of faith, we believe Jesus is the epicenter of everything. He is at the epicenter of everything. So if Jesus affirms the scripture, we should be a people who affirm the scripture. If Jesus sees God the Father as God, and in this case, we won't touch on this today, but we will down the road, he refers to himself as God in this passage. That's pretty powerful stuff. His words are the ultimate truth for us. And so we're going to turn to his words to see what he actually says about God. And I say this as a summary statement because there is so much teaching on God in the Bible that we could camp here for a very long time. And so it is a big subject, and it requires us to put a handle on it somewhere, something that we can sort of grab onto. In other words, we really do have to just start somewhere. And for today, we're going to look at Christ's words about God in the Gospel of John. Just before his death, he is on the verge of going to the cross. And these words that he utters are pretty profound, not just because of the season of his life, but because they give us this keen insight into who he is before God, how he understands God as Father, and what that means for us. In other words, he's going to be very specific, at least in one way, about who God is. In a world that seems to be increasingly sort of confused about how they understand who God is. And here's why this really matters for those of us in Jesus and those of us whom we are trying to share Jesus with. 
couple of months ago, April 25th, 2018, really reputable publication. It's one that I read and I would encourage you to pick it up. It's a, a periodical called Christianity Today. It's probably the best periodical out there that addresses the significant things going on in our world from a Christian perspective, but in a very thoughtful and meaningful way. They published an article detailing the modern state of belief in God in America. And the title of the article was this, 80% of Americans believe in God. That's a great, it's great, right? 80% of them believe in God. Like 4% of them are in church right now, but 80% of us believe in God, okay? And then the subtext of this was Pew Research, which is a really reputable polling company. They found out what they mean. In other words, they took this general celebrated statistic and tried to bring some teeth to understand what it actually meant. And so the point of the article sought to bring a greater clarity to what people actually mean when they say they believe in God. Now, the big picture numbers here are not surprising at all. If you sort of kept up with this globally and certainly here in America, they are sort of tried and true. Roughly 80% of Americans said they still believe in God, while roughly 20% said that they didn't. And it should be noted, this is really worth noting, that the category of unbelief has been steadily growing over the past years, even in our country. That's an interesting thing to point out. In other words, unbelief is becoming, unbelief or no belief is becoming more common. At a time in the history of the church where many of us as Christians are unable to articulate what it is that we believe. So we can see this, this pendulum is somewhat problematic if we don't correct it. So the big picture numbers are, are there. 80% believe in God, 20% don't. But here's where stuff starts to get interesting. Out of the 80% that said they believed in God, only 56% of them said that they believed in the God of the Bible. That's like a third, pretty much, a quarter or so, give or take a little bit, gone immediately. So now we're talking about, is it God capital G, God lowercase g, God like a, a historical one that the world has believed in, a world religion, or God like the one you made up in your living room on Wednesday. There's so many ideas of God out there that 26% of those people, excuse me, 24% of those people immediately said that they believed in a God like lowercase g, higher power. Parsing the numbers even more, they found out that amongst those that believed in the God of the Bible, right? This is sort of the pedigree that we come from. This is what we would call sort of Bible-believing Christians. They're, they're trying to refer to the Scripture to understand who God is. The folks that believe in that God of the Bible, they found that certain life experiences shaped how they actually view God. So think about this. Some viewed him as all love. Others said he was a God of judgment. Some felt that he was like less concerned or not concerned at all with the affairs of the world or your life or mine, while others felt he was deeply concerned with every matter they faced in life. Essentially, your, your pedigree, your life upbringing, your political affiliation, your vocation, all of these things have the ability to, to sort of shape how you view God. And at this point, you are all asking a very serious question. You're probably like, I want to eat lunch. Why is this guy still talking about this idea of belief? I'm going to answer that question for you, whether you're asking it or not, because I got the floor right now, right? I'm glad you asked this, because information like this sort of affirms the reason why teachings like this are important. Culture in general, whether people are affirming belief in God, no God, or something else, there seems to be a growing trend in people casting God, whatever one you have, in their own image, as opposed to sort of understanding God as he wants to be known. And that's very important for the Christian faith, because we do believe in God the Father. And what that means for us is, we have to sort of understand who God says he is, as opposed to writing our own ideas on him or embracing ideas that might be contrary to who he actually is. And so this morning, I really want to emphasize the importance of we being a people who desire to know and understand God for who, has, who he's revealed himself to be in the scriptures. It would be a sort of a fallacy of a relationship if we thought we could 
love God in ways that he has not communicated himself to us or revealed himself to us. It's a, it's a faulty relationship. This is a critical idea for our health and growth in Jesus. And I want you to hear me when I say this, equally as important as we seek to answer people's questions about our God. Understanding who God is benefits us deeply. It also helps us to help folks who are trying to understand who God is. All the folks in those stats that I just gave, those people are thinking, they're asking questions about God, capital G or lowercase g. And we have been put on this earth in large part to help them understand that. So our, our sort of tethered nature to this truth is not just something God wants us to know. It's actually something that benefits the world we live in. This is what Jesus talks about in John 17, 1 through 3. We're going to look at his words. And I want you to know that these are words we can trust because they're Jesus' words. They're words we should trust because Jesus is very trustworthy. And it's here Jesus begins to pray to God just before he goes to the cross. And the way he speaks to God gives us some powerful truths, some insights about God. And this leads me to the only we believe truth I want to share with you this morning. One each week, I promise. Here's what we're going to talk about today. We believe God the Father is alive. We believe that he is well. And we believe that he desires a meaningful relationship with us. And I want to reread what was read earlier. John 17, 1 through 3. Jesus is speaking. There is no doubt in his mind that he is speaking to his Father in heaven, who is alive and well, sovereign on the throne, in control of things, and observing what's going on. In other words, his affirmation here, his, this sort of assumed confidence here is profound. After Jesus said this, he looked toward heaven and prayed, Father, the hour has come. And you've heard me teach on John before. Whenever John references the hour, the hour is the point of Jesus' crucifixion. This is sort of the cryptic language that Jesus uses to describe the moment he was put on earth for. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that your son may glorify you. And then he goes on to say, now this is eternal life. That they, the people listening to him in that moment, and all down the road, us included, that they know you. The only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. The only true God in me, that's what he says, because I am also the only true God. We will get to the Trinity, just not today. So don't think I'm going to cop out on that. That's a talk for a few weeks down the road. Now, before we talk a bit about who God is, it's really important to establish what Jesus does here. He establishes the fact that we believe God actually exists. That's super important. Anytime you read Jesus' words, anytime you read the Bible, it is important to understand that the Bible is assuming like, I don't mean assuming like guessing. I mean, it is, the assumption is God is very real. And the article that I just referenced shows us why this is so important. Why is for the sake of our own growth and the importance of Jesus' mission that we establish this before moving on. There might be somebody in this room who doesn't believe God is real. There might be somebody in this room who knows somebody that doesn't believe God is real. And if we're going to be honest, there are times in our life, even those of us who profess belief in God, where we feel like he is not real, that he is not vibrant or evident in our lives. So unbelief, I say regularly, we sort of just want to create these two linear categories and say there are the people that believe in God and those that don't. And those categories exist, but the situation can often be a little more complicated than that. There are times in the life of the believer where we live as if God is not real. And what I want you to know is that never in the Bible will you find anybody talking about that assumption. When it is brought up, it's corrected. There are serious questions connected to this, and I want to talk about a few. It's interesting that in the Bible, which is a book all about God and our relationship with him, the content is never trying to prove to us that God exists. The, the Bible's not trying to be a lawyer pleading a case. It's stating declarative statements about the reality of God. And in God's goodness, we can, that's, that's a grace to us, meaning these truths gives, give us ideas to think about, but never is the Bible sort of pleading for us to believe in God. Its words state time and time again that God is very real. 
The, the book was written so that we would know that. And what's even more profound is that the reality of God's existence, this is maybe a better way to describe what the Bible is talking about. The Bible is communicating God is very real and that the reality of God's existence is absolutely evident to anybody who's willing to see him. So belief oftentimes is a bit of a judgment of the heart, meaning God has made himself known to the world. We've talked about that already through Jesus. And the trip about whether or not you actually can understand this is whether or not you desire to see that. So our own belief can really cloud our judgment. Whether we are in Jesus, sort of acting like he isn't real, or we're hardened against the idea of God, God wants to be known. And there are many ways that the scripture communicates this to us. There are direct verses, and in a number of places, the Bible talks about the reality of God being deep within us and all around us. And I want to give you some examples of this. So scripture teaches us that all of creation, we believe God created the world. He is, that's, he's the author of all faith, right? Whenever we talk about this, we say that God is the, the author of life as we know it. And oftentimes we sort of juxtapose faith and science. And what's happening here is science is trying to answer the question about how things happen, where the scripture is more concerned with the person of who, crea who created the earth. But the bottom line here is there is an evidence in our world of a creator. And so whether you are a Christian who affirms this truth or a person who does not, it's sort of interesting to think about all of humanity, past, present, and future, has longed to understand where we have come from. There is this insatiable desire for people to understand the origins of humanity. Whatever conclusion you end up is not what I'm arguing about today. My point is, is God is a creator who wants to be known. And we live in a world where everybody's trying to figure out how it happened. What a profound evidence of the fact that God is a, there's a genuine reality to this. Why do people ask this question? The Christian perspective is because God has created us and wants us to have an answer to that. It's undeniable that as we as a people are trying to answer this question, right, there is an answer for us, even though we often arrive at very different conclusions. Think about this, the human longing for love, meaning and worth, purpose. Most of us want that stuff in our life. Most of us on our life goal list didn't say, I want to be undervalued, not cared for, and have a meaningless life. That is not what's on the Hallmark card, right? We don't pass those things out to people. Our longing as people is very different than that. We want our, ma our lives to matter. We want substance in our lives. We want to know that we made a dent in something that mattered in this earth. So it shouldn't be surprising at all that over these past years, the word that has become most popular to describe God is, he's a God of? Don't be bashful. You're all whispering it. He's a God of? He is a God of love. It's okay for us to say that. But he's not only a God of love. There's other attributes or characteristics of God. But the one that has sort of taken the world by storm, the one that seems to be most uttered off of the lips of people, is that God is a God of love, which the Bible clearly communicates. And I wonder, I'm going to presuppose for a moment, I wonder if this is because we live in a world that seems to be drowning in broad and at times superficial relationships. I wonder if what people want to see God most as, as a God of love, who cares and values them, is because oftentimes, you know, our lives, we're, our heads are spinning on our shoulders, and we've got 750,000 digital friends who never respond to our text messages. We've got all of these broad relationships, and in a world that seems to be sort of more connected than ever, this is what sociologists say, more connected than ever, but also more divisive than ever, go ahead and figure that one out. Why do we think people maybe are thinking that God should be the God of love? Well, it makes sense because it might be what they're actually looking for. While there's no denying some of the positive effects that social, the social media revolution has had on our world, there has been writing of late that is beginning to talk about some of the negative effects these tools have had on us as a people. And one of the most obvious is the increased hostility it seems to encourage when people disagree about something. I've joked about this before and I said like, Twitter now is personified. Like people talk about 
what Twitter has said about somebody, meaning like the quorum of goodness and craziness often sort of directed at people and places. It's like its own person now, as if today I'm saying, Twitter, can I baptize you in two weeks? That's how people see Twitter. Think about this from another angle. Romans even talks about how we can even see the thumbprint of God in all people because of the general desire we have to understand what is right and wrong, what is true and good. This is the essence of every social justice movement in America today. And the Bible argues that even a career criminal often understands the difference between right and wrong, which God created the world to function under. The, the challenge here is that for this person, they just choose to embrace the wrong. I'll give you an example of this. A while back, I was watching, a, a, it was a brief documentary, but it was a pretty interesting one about the drug, a, drug, a particular drug dealing problem that was taking place in the urban areas of London and how the police department was dealing with this issue. And so what was happening here is, this is called crown housing in, uh, in England. It's, it's a subsidized or Section 8 housing, government-assisted housing, same, same thing as here. What was happening was these are houses, housing apartments, or flats as they call them, that were supposed to be provided for folks who had genuine, and genuine needs, so they subsidized the apartments. But what was happening is drug dealers had figured out how to apply for this housing, and when they were getting the housing, they were setting up these drug distribution centers. And what was happening was uh, clearly they were making the, the, just the residents much more dangerous for everybody living there. And they began sort of not just keeping into their own little spaces, but they started conscripting other people to work for them. They were getting people addicted. It was, it was crazy. I mean, this thought never crossed my mind. But what was happening is, is they, they were taking over elements of these subdivisions and then literally pulling other people in bondage to them whether they were getting them hooked on something or forcing them to aid in the process of distributing drugs. And if they didn't aid, they would often hurt them or threaten to hurt them. And so at one point in the documentary, here's where I'm going with this, they interviewed one of these drug dealers and he's wearing a heavy mask, he's got a really thick British accent, and they said to him, they said, hey, do you ever think about the fact that you, like, you are literally taking away much needed housing from like single moms and kids? Like, have you ever thought about the implication of what you're doing here so that you could sell drugs? And his reply, without hesitation, was a quick one and a very firm one. He said in this super thick accent, uh, and I'm quoting him here, he said, no, I don't care. I don't have a moral bone in my body. That was his response. Like, as quick as we would say, like, Red Robin today, and you were like, yes, that's how he answered that question. No, I don't care. I don't have a moral bone in my body. And what struck me about this was his, his immediate response, right? He did this, it's sort of like he was conditioned to say this. This is what he believed. And what was fascinating to me was that in that statement was an evidence that he knew it was wrong. What he was saying was people with a moral bone in their body would feel bad about this. And he then immediately pointed out that when God was passing those bones out, I, I didn't get one of them. Meaning like the, those people would feel that way, but I don't. And he was clearly able to discern the difference between right and wrong there. He just chose to ignore it. And in that case, continued to hurt people that were trying to sort of get up on their feet and raise their children. So what is my point in sharing these three examples? These sort of evidences of God. I, I say evidence is not meaning like they're slam dunks, but evidence is meaning there's quite a few of these in the Bible, like lots of them, and I'm only touching on some big ones. My point in sharing all of these examples is that there are many evidences like this in the Bible, and they all assume that God is very real. And that if we are open to seeing God, like if you're trying to figure out what a moral bone is, God will reveal that to you because that's his desire for us. We'll be able to see him around us and sense him around us in the everyday matters of life. And the more you see and sense God in the general, the more likely you are to see and sense him in the specific, the particular, his son. And so what I love about the Bible is it doesn't tiptoe around this truth. In every place and in every way, the posture of the scripture is clear. God is very real. 
He is very noble to those who desire to see him. And this is powerfully evident in what we see Jesus saying about God in John 17. This is sort of the summation of what I want to talk about this morning. You see, much like the larger teaching of the Bible, Jesus himself regularly affirms that God exists. There is no doubt in his mind. In his communication with people, this is, you, it's so clear that this is what he believes and knows. However, in John 17, right, think about this in contrast to what we just talked about, these sort of general evidences of God. In John 17, he presents a very different case for us to examine when it comes to believing that God is alive and active in the world. And while praying directly to God, he shows his ancient audience in John, as they're all observing this and as he's about to go to the cross, and our modern lives today, that God is very real. Because think about this, he is able to speak to him. He, his assumption here is that he can deeply trust God. And in one of the most profound moments of his life, he without question confides in him. John 17 records this whole conversation and clearly shows us Jesus approaches God with trust and confidence, fully expecting that God will be there for him in his time of need. That is the assumption. If you don't think you have that type of a relationship with a person, you are likely not going to throw yourself out there in those vulnerable moments. But here, time and time again, God goes, uh, Jesus goes to God with these assumptions. And that's why he's so direct and honest and upfront with him. And the reason that I love this exchange in the Gospel of John, it's a long chapter and it's, very, it's worth reading it. We're not going to address it all today, but if you are looking for something to read in the Scripture, like I mentioned last week, a topic or an idea a gospel, this is a great place. It covers all of them. Read the conversation between Jesus and God in John 17. And think about the fact that he's doing this while people are watching him. The reason I love this exchange in the gospel of John between Christ and God is because it gives us one of the clearest examples of why believing God is real. Why it's much more than just a philosophy or a world religion or a worldview. Christianity is all of those things. But to reduce Christianity to just those things misses the heart of Christianity in its entirety. It is so important, uh, the, the vibrancy of life, this abundance of life that God desires for us, it's seen right here. It is not a coincidence that in Christ's greatest hour of need, he seeks above all else, not his disciples, not his peer groups. He doesn't do the ancient world version of Twitter, you know, write something on a scroll and nail it to a door. He doesn't do any of that. When he needs to be with somebody, he goes to his God, his Father in heaven, whom he affectionately refers to as Father. Now, last week we made the point that the best way for us to understand how God wants us to relate, or how God wants to relate to us, excuse me, is to carefully examine how God relates to Jesus. He, again, is the epicenter of everything. So if you're looking to understand more deeply and in the flesh what Christianity looks like, we go back to that verse in 1 John. Jesus was given to the world so that we could literally see what God means by relationship and grace and truth and honesty and righteousness and fill in the blanks with the rest of that stuff. When we do this, we see the same fatherly love, care, and encouragement, the strength and the guidance that Jesus seeks from God, these things that God regularly showers Jesus with. If we understand that the relationship between God the Father and Jesus the Son is meant to be a pace scar for us to understand our relationship with God the Father, Jesus the Son, and His Holy Spirit, when we are reconciled to God and Jesus, what this means is those same graces, the same love, the same care and affection that God shows Christ are also available to us. That is what bends my mind in a passage like this. We are observing a relationship between God the Father and Jesus the Son so we can understand God the Father and Jesus the Son, but so that we can also understand the application of this in our lives, that the Father and the Son seek to love us in the same way. And so while I love to talk about philosophy, I mean, I love it. It's one of my favorite things to do. 
We could talk, right, all day about the philosophical and cultural evidences the Bible speaks about to show us there is a God. We could talk about those, and those are super important. But the point I want to make this morning is they seem to pale in comparison to what Jesus teaches us about God here. They're sort of like meant to prime the pump to get us to the good stuff. Jesus himself lives this life, deeply believing God is real, deeply believing that God is knowable, and deeply believing that God is engaged in his life. And so every perspective in that 56% breakdown we just talked about is pretty much seen right here. It's just that people are imbalancing them. They think God is knowable or not knowable, or they think he's all love and no righteousness. You know, when we imbalance our understanding of God, what tends to happen is, first of all, we tend to balance him the way we prefer. That's, that's what happens. That's why I say we like to make God in our own image. But if we do that, we actually short sell the goodness and the grandeur of God. We sort of settle for like 10 cents on the dollar when we do that. And it's not the way God wants us to know him. Jesus gives us this example of how we should know him. Because of the love, the knowability, this sort of presence that he has in his life. Because of all this, Jesus lives his life on earth with this desire to be in God's presence. That's the most profound thing about this relationship they have. Jesus wants to be with the Father. In fact, it's a great sacrifice, Philippians tells us that he is not with the Father in full form like he is when he's on earth. It's a great sacrifice. He, he gives up a lot of who he is, what he does when he comes to the earth to be like us. It's pretty interesting. So with this relational truth in mind, I want to make the same case I made for looking to Jesus to understand why we should value the scripture in our lives when it comes to why we should carefully examine whether or not we truly believe in God. Because Jesus shows us something very important when it comes to our belief and followership of God. He regularly and in exemplary ways shows us that to really believe in God, I believe in God, 80% of America. I want to sort of tighten the noose on that a little bit. It's my hope that when we say those words, we really understand how significant that statement is and how much of a grace it is that we can even utter that word, those words. To really believe in the depths of your heart that God wants to know you, right? That is what we mean when we say we believe in God. When we say that we believe in God, we believe deeply that he has provided a way for us to know him. And when we say we believe in God, that should create in our hearts an ever-growing desire to seek out and press into that relational belief in the same way Jesus did. They shouldn't just be you know, trivial or trite words that 80% of America believe in. They should be words that profoundly, that cause and effect idea I spoke about a few weeks ago. The cause to believe in God should be reshaping us into this relationship we're looking at right now. How God interacts with, with the Son and how the Son interacts with the, God, with, with the Father. And what's beautiful about all of this is that we are given His Holy Spirit to maintain that vibrancy and that connection. And so here's how we'll begin to wrap up. I want you to think about this. I want to make a strong appeal, a strong case for the fact that Jesus, above all else, his most significant contribution to the world was showing us the deep and profound love and relationship that he and the Father had as a pace call for us. Think about this. Jesus, who is just about to go to the cross here and die for the sins of the world, right? He has a number of places he could turn to in this moment. Yet his ultimate desire is to stay deeply connected to his Father throughout the whole process. He clearly shows us this connection that they have with each other. He values it most. And it is a connection that is soon going to be offered to the world. In other words, after the cross, that connection is offered to us now. Like the veil has been rent. That's what the Old Testament says. The, the thing is torn in half. There's no longer a barrier between us and God when we go through Jesus. Now I want you to think about this. Dying for the sins of the world is a pretty heavy responsibility. It's an incredibly costly journey for Jesus. 
It's one defined by him disadvantaging himself in every single way in order to satisfy the wrath of God, the judgment of God. He, he takes it for us. That's what happens here. And when he does that, he pours his, great out, his grace out upon us. He offers us this relationship. And what I find most interesting about the biblical story of the cross is that throughout the whole process, Jesus is r- relatively quiet. Like, I want you to think about this, the nature of what he's about to go through. The journey to the cross. He doesn't complain about anything. It isn't the mocking, uh, the false ac- accusations. It isn't the illegitimate charge. It isn't the fact that they're actually going to kill him. It isn't the poor treatment that he receives by all the people he comes to die for. Keep in mind, he's dying for those very same people that are essentially murdering him at this moment in life. None of that causes him to say anything. From beginning to end, the whole journey to the cross is a brutal one for Christ, yet there are no cries. The one place where we hear Jesus cry out in anguish, it isn't when the nails come, it isn't when the beatings come, it isn't when the spear is in the side, it isn't any of that. It's only in the moment when the weight of the sin of the world is on him. It's in that one moment that he cries out in anguish this statement, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's the only complaint we hear from him on the cross. Now, I want you to think about this. His pain, his lament, it isn't about his execution, as difficult as that was. It is deeply rooted in the fact that when the weight of the sin was upon on his back, with the sin of the world, when he was receiving the judgment of God, in ways that I cannot fully understand or explain, but I'm still deeply thankful for, it's in that moment he can no longer sense the presence of his Father like he is right here in John 17. No longer does he sense love. What he feels is wrath and separation, and judgment. It is in that moment, while he's taking that stuff on our behalf, that, that, that he cries out in anguish. That is the only thing he complains about on the cross. My God, where are you? A wrath that, had, that paved the way for us to have an unrivaled intimacy with God and an unrivaled ability to know God. And that is why I say, when we utter the statement, we believe in God the Father. It is a wonderful and important statement, and it is one that we need to own in the depths of our hearts. It should not be a broad statistic It should be something that is connected to a deep and profound understanding of what it means to even have the permission to say that. I mean, Jesus gives that up for you and I to have it because Jesus himself dies for this. He spills his blood and in that moment gives us the right to call out to God the Father in the same way. And the ability to call out to God the Father, this is language we see in many passages in the Bible. It is I think the most significant name that we are permitted to call God by because it also gives us this amazing identity in life. It, it makes us adopted sons and daughters. It means no matter where you're coming from, you are rooted firmly in the fatherhood of God, this benevolent, gracious, good God. It's given to us to, to reveal this exceptional relationship that Jesus has with his father. And through Jesus' trust in the father, we see some things, some things that we can also know we can take advantage of if we love God, if we believe in God. Jesus looks to him. He loves him. He seeks counsel from him. He approaches God for comfort. He trusts him in all ways. And consequently, this, this, this is a, a foundational idea and understanding of why he is so obedient and faithful to him. There is this reciprocal trust between the two of them. All of this creates this mutual desire for the Father and the Son to be in each other's presence. And what's so wonderful about the blessing and benefits that we see when it comes to what God bestows on Christ is that this is not a dusty doctrine in an old systematic theology book, as valuable as those are, that is meant to be shelved. The nature of this we believe statement is meant to define every element of our lives. It's meant to shape how we understand the relational blessing God shows us. And so you see, the Bible is very clear. When we believe in God the Father by embracing the Son, we are sons and daughters of God. 
And when God looks upon us and sees the blood of his son Jesus, what he sees is good and faithful servants. And when we own that identity, press into it or believe in it for the first time, or ask God to restore it in us, we get to experience the love of God the Father in the very same way, in the same way the Son does. And so what this means is God loves you. Truly he loves you. But to short sell that statement and forget about why God loves us and what God loved us through, that's why I say it's like 10 cents on the dollar. You will never deeply appreciate the love of God for you until you realize what Jesus did for us to have the love of God restored to us. It ups the ante so substantially. This means God loves us like he loves Jesus. And if you need a greater clarity on what that really means, all you need to do is turn to this relationship between God and Christ. Read the rest of John 17. Go to the end of John. The story is written in stone. And so in closing, I want to say this. This passage shows us the reason Jesus' relationship with his father is so exemplary is because he really knows his father. He believes deeply in God the Father. He is God the Father. We'll get to that too. But in the sense, this prayer is like a, a concentrated dose of what the relationship between Jesus and his father looks like in everyday life. This is everyday life. It's, it's an exceptional circumstance. But even in the mundane moments of life, we see the same desire from Christ. When he is tired, he goes to the Father. When he is discouraged, he goes to the Father. When he is celebrating, he goes to the Father. In every rhythm of life, the Father is present with him. And in the conversation he, makes, he has here, there's this direct connection between experiencing God's benevolent fatherhood and how deeply you know and believe in God. This is why we spent three weeks talking about what we mean by we believe. To deeply believe requires us to understand what belief is. And belief in the Christian faith is it's a resolute faith, a trust in someone. And in this case, it's in Christ. That is faith. A resolute trust in the fact that we believe in God. And when we approach him, he will treat us in the same way as he did his son. This is why when Jesus prays that we would experience eternal life, I won't even talk about this in, in detail, but think about this. He defines eternal life as knowing the Father. That's what he says. Heaven, right? That word we throw around, we all have opinions, at least some of us do. The ones in the Bible are much better about what that's going to be. Heaven in the Bible is literally we, the, the, the body of Christ, those in Jesus, right? Past, present, and future. Those of us who follow God are with each other with God forever. That is heaven. Heaven is the presence of God. And the Bible makes no apologies. This is why it makes no apologies for its declaration that God is very real, very alive, and very available to you. And so as we move into our response time this morning, that's what I'd like you to think on. That's what I want you to chew on here for a little bit. Do you believe in God? And if you do believe in God, do you believe in it to the level of the degree that we have briefly talked about here this morning? Because that is a never-ending well of goodness and grace. That, that, that statement will outpace us in every way. The more you affiliate your heart with it, the more likely you, you are to understand and sort of be mesmerized by the profound nature of what it means for God to love us to give us the privilege to refer to him as our Father, our Father in heaven. So in response time, I want you to ask yourself a couple of questions. What is Jesus saying to you about your belief, or maybe even your lack of belief in God the Father right now? And equally as important, what is it you will do with that belief or lack of? Will you take this day to turn to Christ, or ask him to sort of renew and replenish your heart? Will you get some of the hard questions answered in your own life, seek help from somebody, or will you be a light in your world this week to be a person who can answer the hard questions people have about God? Will you make it sort of a personal goal to really own, in the depths of your heart, this beautiful statement that we believe in God the Father?